morning. Father God, so good to be in this place, and thank you, Father, for this time of worship um, here at the bridge. We are grateful that you gather us together. All week long, Father, we are the scattered church, but on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m., we are the bridge and we are gathered. And that brings us um, courage and encouragement. So, Father, may your spirit be strong in this place. May your word speak to us, and um, may it guide us, and may it be significant for us throughout this next coming week. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in 2001, a gentleman by the name of Jim Collins wrote a book. Um, He has become known essentially as the management guru in the country. And some of you have read some of his books. Those of you who are in management or maybe just like to read great business management books, um, maybe you're the head of an organization, whatever, and this book has uh, been something that you guys have had to pull in to try and help get your organization back on on track. Um, he wrote a book called Built to Last, but his, probably his most significant and memorable book um, is called Good to Great. Good to Great. So there it is if you want to grab that from Amazon or whatever. But it's called Good, Good to Great. And basically in that book, it's a fairly dense little book. It covers a lot of, um, a lot of uh, analytical data. So he basically wanted to understand how some of the great organizations, the great companies, uh, make that leap from good to great. And he had to take and look at their performance data over a period of time. Uh, and their performance data specifically uh, geared around uh, their profitability. And looking specifically at how they performed, they outperformed everyone else fairly significantly. And he wanted to look at those organizations that were performing at a high, high, high level better than the average uh, great or good organizations out there. And he had to analyze that and track it and track it and track it. And um, he began to realize that indeed there are significant things that those organizations that take the leap from good to great are doing and they are significant and they matter and they go from good to great. And... um, the cha- chapter four of the book, I thought, was quite significant and fairly relevant and pertinent for us in the church arena. We're not a major corporation, right? The local church isn't, you know, we're not into profitability per se, um, but we are an organization. We are the body of Christ, right? We are a, a gathered entity with a sense of purpose and direction and on all of those sorts of things. But I thought chapter four of his book was, was pretty significant. And he says this, face, uh, the title of the chapter is Face the Brutal Facts. Face the Brutal Facts, but don't lose faith. Face the Brutal Facts, yet don't lose faith. I thought, how significant. This is not a book about faith. He is not necessarily a Christian author writing to Christian organizations. He is, he is strictly a marketplace author talking to major corporations and organizations about how they take the leap from good to great. But that one stuck out to me. Because while we're not necessarily interested in um, profit margins and profitability in the local church, we are concerned about, and we do think about the idea of faithfully 
giving. We are, we do think about the resources. We do think about the money that comes into our church. And we do talk to our members about uh, faithful stewardship and how they participate and how they give. And, and it takes money to run this organization, right? It's just the brutal reality of it is that it does take resources to operate this organization. But we're primarily concerned about We're primarily concerned about, we primarily operate in the arena of faith, right? So that's why it stuck out to me, the last part of that chapter, confront the brutal realities, yet don't lose faith. And it was interesting, in chapter four, he he cites this, um, he cites this thing called the Stockdale Paradox. Listen to this, I thought this was really good and very relevant for you and me as well. He says this, Retain absolute faith that you can and will prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulties. Wow. And at the same time, confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. It's called the Stockdale Paradox. Retain absolute faith that you can and will prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulties, and at the same time confront the most brutal facts of your current reality. So again, absolutely pertinent to you and me. And remember, we operate in the arena of faith. So I couldn't help but think about how is it that the body of Christ, the, the organization of the church, the living, breathing organism of the church, how is it that we go from being this organization that's, that has good faith, that is a good faith organization, how do we go from being people of good faith to people of great faith? How do we make the leap from faith, good faith, to Great faith. And you might be thinking, okay, dude, that's a little cheesy. Great faith, whatever. Well, give me a second. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. If you've been around church a while, if you're a churchy type of person, you grew up in this thing, you know that all your Sabbath school teachers along the way, and even in sermons, the pastors have talked about Hebrews chapter 11. Why? Because it is the great hall of fame of faith. Because it has in its hall of fame those people who made the leap from good faith, just normal average faith, it's really awesome faith, to great faith. To a faith that God would inspire a Bible writer to actually write down and put in the Bible. These would be people like Abel, Abraham, Noah, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and a prostitute by the name of Rahab. She's in the Faith Hall of Fame. Wow. How do we go, how does the church go from good faith to great faith? That's corporately as a body. You can ask yourself. You can, you can sort of do a little bit of personal reflection on this. How about my faith? Do, where am I at? Is it a good faith or is it a great faith? Have I been willing to take the leap? What are the things that I can measure and look at and evaluate in my own life that would help me to make sure that I made the leap from good faith to great faith. Good to great faith. And so, 
I'm going to spend the next few minutes sort of looking at a story that helps us to perhaps grab a few principles, a few uh, teachings and understanding about this whole idea of how we, as God's people, make that leap from good to great faith. It's a story that we're all familiar, well, not everyone might be familiar with this, but it's a, it's a, it's a familiar story in that there, there's a song. And, and those of you, again, who have been in church all your lives, you know these songs that we sing. You know Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Come on, everybody sing along. Joking, don't sing. All right. Zacchaeus, but then there's Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. So our story... The narrative that we're going to look at is an Old Testament narrative from Joshua chapter 6. If you want to go there, turn in your paper, paper Bibles. It's Joshua chapter 6. It's the sixth book of the Bible. It's chapter 6 of the sixth book of the Bible. But it's a story that highlights the notion, I believe, what I was able to sort of grasp out of it, what God sort of gave me this week, is this idea of going from good to great faith. In fact, in fact, this story is mentioned and it's not mentioned to the individual. In other words, it's not, it's not a highlight of Joshua's faith, per se, although Joshua is mentioned in the chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, going back to Hebrews chapter 11. But it mentions, it mentions what the community did, what the people did, or what was done as a result of God being with the people. So if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, it says this, by faith, there's that word again, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. All right, so here's a little bit of the background, a little context of the story. God's people, the Israelites, they've been, um, they've been rescued out of, out of Egypt. They've been set free. Um, they are poised to go into the, uh, the promised land. I'm going uh, back a little ways. They're, they're poised to go into the promised land. They have a leader. His name is Joshua. And um, they've crossed the, the Jordan River. And the first test that comes, the first obstacle that they encounter, because remember, God had promised them, you're going to uh, take this promised land. It's your ancestral land. You're going to take it. It's, gonna, it's the promised land. It flows with milk and honey. I'm going to give it to you. But you're going to encounter some brutal truths and some tr brutal realities along the way. And the first one they would confront would be Jericho. They'd go from Jericho to Ai, but Jericho would be the first one that they would have to confront. And what I, find, what I found interesting, if you read the story, if you go back and read the story, it actually doesn't seem like it's, um, it, there's not a whole lot of drama, if you ask me, around the story. Now, there's a lot of drama around what actually happens. Uh, it's a fairly dramatic uh, situation, but there's not a lot of drama in my mind um, about the whole story. Nevertheless, let's read it. Um, Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. It's kind of a, a great summation of the entire story. So we'll land here and then keep on rolling. Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. It says this. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. So the Israelites are there. They basically surrounded Jericho. And they are poised and ready to take it over because God has given them this city. No one went out, no one went in. So Jericho, the people in Jericho, just kept, sort of went on lockdown. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. 
March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So God lays out the battle plan essentially for his people. This is how you're going to take Jericho, this is how I'm going to lead you into the land that I promised you. Now, what's really, really powerful here, and the lesson for you and me, thinking again about this idea, face the brutal facts, face the brutal facts, yet remain faithful. Here they are, and the brutal reality that God's people face is that Jericho is a fortified city. It is on lockdown. They actually have enough resources. They could go a long time. It's the, uh, it's, it's the time of the harvest. They've harvested lots of food. They got water. They got food. They got all kinds of supplies. Uh, Jericho is essentially just locked. They, they're good to go. And yet God's people are told that Jericho will be delivered into their hands. What I find really, really cool is the methodology by which God would encourage them and give them Jericho. Go out and march around. <laughs> march around and then blow some trumpets. That just sounds so masculine, doesn't it, right? You're thinking of these warriors that are out there and not only march around once, but march around seven times. And on the seventh day, you're going to march around seven times. Imagine some of the soldiers coming home to their families and talking to their spouses. And the wife's like, so how, you go out and battle, you get the sword out and take a few dudes out? Nope. <laughs> Just marched around the city. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. That must have been an awkward conversation. You going out for another battle tomorrow? Yeah, we're going to go. We're going out, honey. We're going to go battle. You, you need to take this sword? Not really. <laughs> Not really. And yet what I also find interesting is God was right there in the middle of them. You see, what we might, what we might think is the correct methodology to keep our momentum and to get, to get our movement going and to make sure that we are successful may, not, may very well not be the same sort of methodology and approach that God might use. See, what's, what's really cool is I, I love this is that the only way that we are successful and the only way we remain a movement, and Seventh-day Adventism is a movement, by the way, right? The only way that we remain a movement and the way that we continue to be successful and the way that they were successful is God was right in the movement with them. And whereas it seemed fairly redundant, we're going to walk around this city, we're going to walk around this city, seemed kind of foolish at the time, God was actually moving. So the reality, is of the, the reality of the fact is, as an organization, as the organism, as the body, as Christ, we're only a movement as long as Jesus, as Christ, is right in the middle of us. That's, that's where your movement comes from. I don't care about your innovation, and Lord knows we are slow to innovation, church people. I was going to say up here that, you know, we don't do church the way that we used to. 
We do. <laughs> That's part of the problem. <laughs> right? So, so the, challenge, the challenge isn't so much that we innovate and we attempt to manipulate things so that the church is successful and, be, and continues to move and with a purpose, sort of purposefulness. It is, in fact, can we get on board with the movement that God is already doing? See, God was right there in the midst of them. It says that the covenant there was there. The Ark of the Covenant was there. And so that represented God's presence. So as long as they, when they were out and they were marching around Jericho, they were, God was moving. And it may have seemed like they were carrying God along, but they weren't. God was carrying them along. And as long as they followed suit with God's plan for their organization, and as long as they caught the vision that he had for them, they found success, even in the face of the brutal realities of facing a fortified city that was well-stocked, that could have held out for a very, very long time. Think about this in your own life. Where is it that you may think that you are sort of doing God's will, but in reality, you really need God right in the middle of you to confirm that, right? The truth of the matter is we may, we may appear to be doing what God wants us to do, and in reality, we, that's maybe just lip service. And the way that we know that we're moving, the way that we are purposely engaged in God's will and his plan is if God is right in the middle of all that we are doing, despite the brutal realities of what we face. What's famous about the story are the walls. And what stood out to me when it came to the walls is that there are visible walls, and the walls around Jericho were really thick, and it was, they were designed in such a way that there was like, there was a wall, and then there's a retaining, there's a retaining wall, there's a wall above the retaining wall, then you go another few hundred yards, and then there was another wall, and they were very thick, and they were very tall. So not only did you have to conquer this retaining wall and then the wall on top of that, but then you had to go a little ways and there was another wall. There were multiple walls in one. But I don't think that's the most significant wall that they face. I think the most significant wall are the invisible walls. It's the stuff that sort of festers and is quiet in our heart. It's the type of walls that convince us that when we face the brutal realities, there is no, there's nothing we can do about this. And yes, we love you, God. And less, yes, God, you promise us that you will accomplish great things and so forth. But we're looking at this thing, and it's not looking good. There's a couple of things I want us to think about. One is this. Sometimes, sometimes we forget. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes, and they, they may very well have been tempted to forget how God had led them in the past. How God had come through for them in the past. How God turned back the Red Sea. How God turned back the Jordan River so they could walk across on the, on the dry ground. How God turned back their enemies. How God provided for them. How God was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. How God did everything for them. He set them up for success. And as long as they were involved in his movement, they were fine. You ever faced a wall? You ever faced a challenge? And you quickly get amnesia about what God has done for you in the past. Do we not realize who this God is that we have on our side? 
that he is big and that he is powerful and that he, that he understands where we're at. He can take down any wall. So while our walls are formidable, they are not insurmountable in faith. Our walls may very well be informidable, but they're not insurmountable through faith. The other thing that stands out to me is this, is, the, is this idea of fear. Now, I don't get a lot of fear in this story of Jericho where they're marching around. I don't get fear coming out of the story. But, but kind of what, what led them, uh, what, prior to this, they, there was some fear. So there's the potential that there was some lingering fear even in the hearts of those who were there at Jericho because fear had put them in a situation prior to this that made them to have to go out and wander around. Remember that story? They came up to the land. Moses was in charge. They came up to the land. They sent the spies out into the land of Canaan. And the spies brought back the bad report. But two of the spies didn't. Two of those who went in to inspect the land didn't bring back a bad report. One of those guys was a guy by the name of Joshua. One of them was Caleb. One of them was Joshua. When they came back, they said something quite different. Listen to Numbers chapter 14, verses 6 through 9. It says this, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Fear can get the best of us, but faithfulness demands an enormous amount of courage. In the face of the brutal realities that we face, in, face, in the face of the walls that are erected both uh, circumstantially, physically in our way, as well as the walls that are in our hearts, the only remedy for those, the only way that they come down, the only way that they don't destroy our movement is through courage. And God specifically recognizes Caleb and Joshua And we know that because Caleb and Joshua were so courageous and they came back and they had faith in God. Remember, never lose faith. In the face of brutal realities, never lose faith. And because they came back with faith in God, they got to enter the promised land. Everyone else did not get to. They got to wander around for 40 years. And so here they are, 40 years later, poised to take uh, Jericho. And they're, they're still talking about their faith. They're still talking about their courage. They're still these men who have moved from good to great faith. It's pretty powerful. Pretty powerful. So, a, a couple of other things, just as we, um, as we kind of wrap it up here. Um, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. This may be more of a contemporary or more of a, uh, more of a specific sort of um, reference here because I want us to think about how important our faith is. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate, and if you read the story there back in, um, back in Numbers and if you read it um, even in, in Joshua, when you think about rebellion, rebellion may very well be 
um, our unwillingness or our coward, our, our being afraid and our fear. And so notice what happens. The very first part of this passage in Revelation, the people who are mentioned in this passage are all people that we would say, yep, those are sinners, man. They're going to not such a good place. But notice the very first thing it says there. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars, they will, con- they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Wow. The cowardly are mentioned there. So those of us who are part of this organization, those of us who are part of the body of Christ, are challenged and called to live a life of relenting faith. That faith demands a certain level of courage. And God does not take that lightly. Because he said those, who, those folks who are cowardly are also in the same group with the murderers and the liars and the sexually immoral. So in this day and age, as we face whatever we face, as we look at the brutal realities of life, let's not fade in fear, but let's trust and have a faith, a great faith that calls us to enormous courage. Now, I gotta, I gotta finish up. It, it, what also stands out to me in this story is the reality that um, their win came together. Togetherness is a win, in other words. So get everybody out there to get, get all the, the fighting men, get all the marchers out there, get the people blowing the horns, march around, 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 around. And what stands out is it isn't so much a spotlight on an individual, one great leader who's leading the way. It doesn't mention Joshua in that way. But it's all of these people working together. And what I love about that, and, and I, can, I can use this illustration from running. Some of you are runners and some of you uh, are active. But what I notice is that when I run by myself, I'm, it's a lot more painful and a whole lot less enjoyable. But when I run in a group, the time tends to go by fast and I don't even realize I don't even realize how much ground I've covered, and I seem to make it home a whole lot faster. (laughs) Think about that. One of the most significant strategies that the church has is not simply acting alone individually, but coming together for a common purpose and a common good. And when we do that, we begin to see walls come down, and we, be, we begin to see that the, that the journey and the run, it, it's not quite as painful as I thought it was. And we begin to realize that we get home a whole lot faster than doing it alone. Has the faith journey for you seemed like it's a whole lot more of a struggle than a joy? It may be that you're doing it alone. It's a whole lot more fun, and the win comes when we are together. And so we have, this big, we have this big vision. We have this purpose and this plan that God has laid on our hearts to build something for his kingdom here on earth, to minister to children and so forth. And we don't get there if we all run alone. We get there. We get the win. We find success. We go from good to great when we all come together. 
when we come together, when we run together, it sure doesn't seem like home is that far away. When we come together, when we run together, man, um, it just seems like, it just seems like a little piece of heaven even on earth. So my appeal to you, wherever you are, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, whatever brutal realities you face, you face, never, ever, ever give up on faith. Find a way that you can run together. Find a way that you can enjoy the journey together, the run together. And in the end, in the end, home's not so far away. Pray with me. Father God, um, you've called this body, this organization, this group of believers to great things in this world before you return. But Father, it will demand great faith. So I pray that this would be a training ground for faith, and I pray that we would collectively and corporately come together in faith so that we can achieve great things for your kingdom. May you move in powerful ways. May you draw us together. May we do great things in this world for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless. Have a great Sabbath.